you and I got to hang out in person over the weekend. That was really fun. That's always fun. It's magical when we get to be together together. It was really fun getting to see the interaction between you and yet another completely different group of sports course students. Every group is different. Yes. So for people who've been to the core or watched the core on video, when you do the core in person or you do the sports in person, there's a feedback loop. There's a synergy between the presenter and the students because the energy is different. The questions are different. The different specialties in the room. So when you have a group that's five MDs, three DOs, four or five chiropractors, six PTs, two acupuncturists, a massage therapist, and an untrained civilian. It's an entirely different energy and questions and focus. And that's right. The audience drives the core. I've had students that have been, Naomi Kelly comes to mind. Between the time she took her first core in 1998 or 99, and the time she retired in 15, she took every single Portland core, and we used to videotape the Portland core every year. She took 15 of them, and everyone is different. Yeah. And We've gotten to the point, believe it or not, where I hardly change them. Kevin might (laughs) throw something at me, but I hardly change them like at all. There'll be one or two things that I take out or ways I reword it. And same thing with you, I think you said, yeah? Yeah, like I, I am able to stick to the script. Every core teaches me as an instructor where my weakest links are. Okay. And so I've learned that the practicums, I feel like I can never win because when I had a script, I feel like people wanted to deviate and they were mad at me because they're like, no, I, I want to treat that person's shoulder and I don't want to treat their pelvis. And I'm like, no, we need a script. We need to stick to the formula. Ah. And then I was like, no, I should let them organically assess and treat. And then, but then that goes off the rails. And then I had a hard time bringing it in because it is just me. And even if I had instructor helpers, like in Arizona, it's always such a big class. So I always have at least one or two people helping me. Even then it goes off the rails. So I feel like there has to be some sort of, I know you stick to a script with the practical, like supine cervical, this is what it is. It's hard to just deviate when that person has something. The change that's happened in the core I'd say in the last two years because I used to do the shoulder prone that ended up being way too much trouble yeah then I started with the neck and shoulder supine yeah because I thought it was safer but physically mechanically it's so much more difficult because nobody on the planet has ever done physically what we do with the neck and shoulder. So I think it was two years ago. And I'm looking over my shoulder at Kevin because it's like he's my external hard drive. 
I decided, yeah, that's scary. <laughs> so I decided that after watching the supine cervical practicum, that practicum is actually where students learn that the frequencies always do what they're described as doing. Yes. And we start that practicum with the statement, the purpose of this practicum is not to treat the patient. Now that's different than the sports where you're teaching them to respond to what they feel physically and to put that together with the frequencies and how to change it and how to think about it. In the core, the purpose is to teach the practitioner, number one, that the frequencies always work. Now, mind you, I didn't change this until 2021 or 22. And that was finally the time when it occurred to me because I used to have, I used to do it just once. Right. And then everybody wanted to feel, and it's no, the person that's doing it gets to do it. And that's when it occurred to me, it's no, we're going to do this practicum three times until everybody has a chance. And then this is where you learn that the frequencies always do what they're described as doing. Yeah. And they look at you like you're green but then that's where they learn to feel and keep their hands soft. And that 40 and 94 only relaxes the upper trap and the SCM. That's all it does. Once it's finished, then 40 and 10 does one thing. And then 40 and 396 the splenius and the longissimus are all enervated by slips off the dorsal root or dorsal roots. So 40 and 396 only gets those out of the way, those muscles. Now, what can you feel up at the base of the skull? So they move their hands up and there's this sunrise look coming over their face. And then you run torn and broken in the ligaments. And the lateral suboccipitals relax. Why do they relax? Because the injured ligaments is why they're tight. And so it's, but I had been teaching it for 22 years before I figured out to do that. That's a little scary. So you're allowed some latitude. How long have you been doing the sports? Since 2017 was the first yeah. one. So six years. You're going to change it every time. It, you're right. You do cater to the group. and We have a smaller group here in Portland. So it was nice to be able to give them something extra or take something away. When we have a group that's 80% trainers, we spend a lot of time with the movements. They want to squat. They want to mimic a bench press. They want to do this. They want to do that. This group was a little more rehab based. So we spent a little more time explaining the supine cervical, giving them different ways to do supine shoulder, walking them through. We had a dentist that was very cool to have her in the group when I was doing TMJ, extra oral, fascial mobilization on the skull. It was so 
you, I learn a lot as a practitioner or as an instructor, as they're learning as practitioners. And especially if you are customizing it to the patient in front of you. Yes. We had a patient last week where she had TMJ on one side, no clicking, just really tight pterygoids and one strip in the master. She also had a history of a strep in her tonsils for years. When they finally got around to taking her tonsils out, they just disintegrated. They've been, yeah, that's a good face. They've been infected for so long. So on the right, there was a lymph node the size of maybe a centimeter and a half, like a big marble, and the lymph channels. And if you look at where the tonsil is in the back and what the lymphatic drainage is and where strep goes from the tonsils to the sinus, to the pharynx, to the lymphatics. So her TMJ, usually in my world, it's just torn and broken in the connective tissue from wisdom tooth surgery. For her, it was strep and scarring in the lymph node. So scarring in the lymph node didn't soften it, but strep, there's four frequencies for strep. Two of those made the lymph node just disappear and then scar tissue in the lymph node. And that softened all the scar tissue under her jaw. And that's what made the masseter and the pterygoid give up, was strep. Amazing. And such a good point that I'm going to have to add this in my TMJ component because (laughs) I am such a stickler for going on the journey of the injury. Like I was trying to explain to these practitioners, it's not just taking notes. It's not just taking a history because all the frequencies have to go in sequential order according to the injury. So yeah, scarring in the nerve easily is going to get your pain down, but is it going to last? No. Is that what's causing everything to tighten up? No. So when people are freaking out about, oh my God, where do I start? What if I miss something in the history? I'm like, relax, you've got time. Your number one goal is always to help the patient with their pain. And then you can start to get picky and then you can start to get detailed, detailed. Yes. And then you begin to think your way through. So once that pain is down, then you go back. Okay, yes, there's scarring. But I think the biggest shift, the way that we're talking about frequency is it didn't get like that from outer space. Things just don't scar. Why did the scarring take place? Was there trauma? Did something bleed? Yes, blah. But then in this, right? So exactly. So then there's, I've gone back to the basics before I used to just really do a drive-by on them and I'm sticking with them a little bit longer now and being a little bit more patient. The sentence that always sticks out is the removal of the pattern. And I have to just keep that in my brain. You have to remove the pattern. Neutralize the pattern. When I was describing to somebody today how the frequencies work, In physics, it's called destructive interference. So you have 
a pattern, you've got a sound, let's say, or a waveform, and you put in a waveform that is its opposite, and it neutralizes it. So that's the theory behind how FSM works, or how we think it works. It'd be nice. I can hardly wait to get biopsies and actually demonstrate it. But when Juliana Mortensen lectures, she describes in detail the physics of how FSM works, how it turns something from a solid to a gel, and then it reorganizes itself. It's quite extraordinary, the physics of it, right? Yes. Only in the last couple of years have I been so excited to use the word thixotropic changes of fascia going from a hardened state to a liquid state back to a hardened state with temperature. Yeah. That's what we do. It was funny. I had somebody at the course that was like, I've never felt smudge. And like the first thing I said is challenge accepted. Like you will by the end of this weekend. And I was telling this to somebody and they were like, that was pretty bold that you promised that. And I said, I'm at that point where I'm confident now, where I can at least, if she's not a patient feeling something smushed, she'll at least be a practitioner palpating smushed. Like that, that's just a given now that we can do. And it was so cool to have somebody else explain smush where they were saying, I can just feel everything with clear borders and definition now. And I'm like, yes, that's another way of explaining smush. It doesn't just turn to like gelatinous goop, but that's what I always feel like. You can just sink into the tissue and you can just feel everything without static in the way. It's just. Yeah. It's just that thing that you're doing with your hands. And when you, for those of you that are practitioners, well, even in patients that are listening, this smush that we talk about, the trick is, if you want to feel it, is don't work so hard at it. If you press too hard, you'll go right past it. So David Simons, God love him, could never feel the softening because he was so used to ischemic compression that he couldn't soften his touch because to be able to feel the tissue softening you have to wait and lay your fingers on it and wait for it to soften yeah and it's putting your eyes at the end of your fingers putting your brain at the end of your fingers yes it's less doing more listening right you have to be patient you have to wait And I'm getting better too at watching people. If you're going in, sorry, if you're listening to this on a podcast, I'll try to verbally explain it. YouTuber people can watch me. If you're going in with the tippy tops of your fingers pressing, it's wrong. Get your hands off the patient. You have to feel with your, the broad part of your finger. You have to relax your fingers. You have to relax your wrists. I can tell right off the bat, who's going to listen right away versus who's still treating, who's still creating noise. And it's no, you're not, let the frequencies do that stuff. You're just there for the feedback. You're there to listen. Yeah. And for the other description is it's like a narrow one lane road. Yes. Motor going out 
or you have sensory coming in. Yes. And you can't do both. Now, the challenge is when you start out feeling it, and so it's all sensory. And then at some point, there is a need. So you find a place where a nerve is stuck or scarring in the dura is the big one at the rectus capitis posterior minor. There's this little teeny muscle that's maybe a centimeter and a half, two centimeters long. And it's got a fibrous attachment directly to the dura. And you run the frequency scarring in the dura and you take that finger and you wait until the muscle softens. And then you lift straight up towards the ceiling. And that's work. That's when your motor and you keep your wrist. So I had two students in the clinic last week. And you keep the wrist stiff, your hands stiff, braced, so that your fingers can be relaxed. And then you can use your arm and your wrist and your hand and lift C1 or the RCP minor directly towards the ceiling and roll C1 and roll the scar tissue right off the dura. That's motor. There's no way to do that without work. So it's, yes, it's soft. Yes, you let the frequencies do the work. And then there's... Absolutely. And... Like I said, that goes way back to how I first hated FSM and I first fell in love with it is because yes, it's not a substitute for good manual therapy. It's not a substitute for drugs. It's not a substitute for surgery. It's not a substitute. It's an adjunct, best adjunct that there, there possibly could be. But you're right. There is, there's a time and a place to incorporate range of motion, incorporate pressure, incorporate mobilizations, whatever is in your scope of practice. But it's also just that respect of there's something else happening that it's not just you, like you said, mortar. There there has to be, I use the analogy all the time, like when you're learning how to drive standard, right? It's about putting the gas and taking off the clutch. There's a sweet spot where you learn the car is not going to shake. You're not going to stall. You're not going to roll backward. You, you learn that. And that's what FSM teaches you to to get that sensory and motor balance right yeah exactly it's pretty fun it is really fun it is pretty fun that was a heck of an introduction I've got two big topics on the hit list today that I have kept rolling to the bottom of the pile and then I I had a plea today for one of the conditions so we're going to see if we can talk about MS and Parkinson's whoa okay (laughs) Rob Martino talked a lot about MS way back when I had him on as a guest and some of the things that he's doing with that. But I'd like to hear your thoughts. This is not really something that I treat a ton of, although I have treated some of it and had some very good success. But let's start with MS, shall we? MS, for those of you that don't treat it, is an autoimmune condition where your nerve, your immune system decides that the myelin in your brain or your spinal cord belongs to somebody else. So the immune system attacks the myelin and 
when it strips the myelin off, when it gets inflamed and the myelin gets thin, the body spackles over it, repairs it with something called plaque. It's scarring. So back in 2005 or so, I went to a colleague's office. She was a neurologist. She had a bunch of MS patients. And we had them in her office for three days over a weekend. And we found out that we could make it better with reducing inflammation and increasing secretions in the myelin. That made sense. I had the idea that what we needed to do was take the plaque off, take the scarring off. Every patient we did that on, we made them worse. So the ataxia went up, the spasticity went up, and that's because the scarring, while it's something you can see on the MRI, is a conductor. So mm -hmm. it, the impulse is slowed, but it's, it does something. You take the scarring off and you can't get the myelin back on in time. And that makes them worse, at least mm -hmm. for one or two days. Wow. So I have one MS patient who's had MS for 20 some odd years, and he is determined to walk again. Now, he has only use of his left hand, so C6, has lesions in his brain and his cord. His right hand, the grip strength is maybe two pounds. Left hand, the grip strength is... 19 pounds and you always treat the vagus and you treat why what happened just before your first episode okay. so what is it it's impossible to have an autoimmune disease when the vagus is working right Does that make sense all yeah. right so the first thing you have to do is get the vagus turned back on so the vagus will control the inflammatory response and control the immune system. That leads to the question, what happened that turned the vagus off? So this particular patient comes in an electric wheelchair with a catheter, and he can use only the joystick with his left hand. and we decide that the best thing to measure would be, can we get his right hand to work? So he's already done the hard work. He's doing Joe Dispenza's workshops. He's figured out that it was negative stress and emotional trauma and an abusive childhood and abusive relationship and all of this that got his vagus to turn off and there was an auto accident and so we treated the vagus and 
we did the frequencies for increasing secretions in the peripheral myelin, so in the spinal cord, and the central myelin in the brain. I did a drive-by on the basics, trauma, paralysis, allergy reaction, reduce inflammation. And we had one session where we really focused on reducing inflammation and didn't change his grip strength at all. So I kept him an extra hour, ran increased secretions in the myelin, and his grip strength in his right hand went from two pounds, like he couldn't open it, to 19 pounds. Equal left. He just sent me a video today of him standing at Dispenza's workshop. And Dispenza works on emotional and psychospiritual energy. But this patient said, This is changing, and that's changing, and that's changing. And he's doing all the work that needs to be done to create the stable state. So you have to have something that will maintain what you do. So it's really easy to tell him, you've already done the hard part. And my goal with him, speaking of MS, is for you to, and without changing the patient's passion to get up and walk, that is his goal to hint, and I had to do it obliquely, ideally, you'll get to the point where it doesn't matter whether you walk or not. You have healed the most important part, which is that which is inside yourself, right? Now I can help, 40 and 89, turning the vagus on, anger, hurt feelings, terror, fear. So internally, it doesn't matter. Right. That's what I said when we did George's memorial. Are you a soul that has a body or are you a body that has a soul? If you think that you are your essence, your soul that happens to have a body, what's more important to heal? It's, this guy has already done the hardest thing. Now, with MS, I maintain, you can't put tissue back that's not there. He's proving me wrong because he sent me f- videos, four videos today of, it's really odd that you bring this topic up because we've never talked about MS. We never have, but is it that odd? <laughs> yeah. So four videos of him standing up. Now he has people spotting him, but for him to get his trunk muscles and his leg muscles to work, for his bowels to work, to achieve some bladder control is impossible. Yeah. And I would give Dispenza's work most of the credit. This patient says what you and I did with FSM was essential to this next step. So we did the emotional work first, the immune system work first, 
Then we did myelin and turning on the vagus and effectively treating the emotional trauma neurologically, as well as psychospiritually, which is what you do in Dispenza's work. And that formed the platform for where he goes next. And so that's, yeah. That's amazing. Amazing on a couple different levels. And to just make a physical medicine parallel, that's why I staggered the course the way I did with that P module with rehab, recovery, and performance, because you have to, like we say, clear the way for that foundation of strength, right? You're never going to develop hypertrophy or improve motor unit recruitment if the tissue is unhealthy, if the tissue is restricted in any way. And whether that's a mechanophysiological response or a psychological response, right? Either the tissue can't because there's adhesions or neurologically there's descending inhibition or there's some sort of, I don't ever like to use the word weakness. So we'll say just any kind of inhibited tissue or there is the, like you're mentioning psycho-spiritual belief of, I can't, I won't, I'm scared. There's three main components to movement at any level. That is so cool. I used to have on my desk before I tidied up, I have a picture of it in my phone, but it says the soul moves first. Oh. Yeah. That's one. The soul moves first. Let's use that for the quote today. Yeah. Parkinson's is a lot easier. Okay, let's, unless there's any questions about MS, and I'll just give, I'll give the gallery a second to chime in. I think there might be a question. How can I introduce an MS client of mine to see the seminar? I have two MS clients, one very successful. The other one has outside influences preventing him from using FSM. Want him to hear Carol. This podcast will be open for the public. So once it's up and running, you can have them listen. Hello, patient. Hi, patient. (laughs) And understanding the process of MS and the process of Parkinson's, it's the process that is important. And it's the process where FSM can hurry it along. And Debbie, I'd also implore you to listen to when I had Rob Martino on, because he talked a lot about MS and some of the other ways that he looks at it. And I believe there was a tonsillitis or a strep link that he saw a lot of in his practice. So he might have some neat information, or you might want to listen to that one as well. And if you look at an infection, what turns the vagus off? Infection, trauma. And so if he sees or if you have in the patient's history, what happened before your first episode? I had a sore throat. I just had the flu. I had vex. I got a flu shot. I got vaccinated. I got whatever. I got divorced. And that's, then you follow that. If you can get the patient to remember when we did the scleroderma trial in England, Scleroderma is an autoimmune condition where the peripheral blood vessels, the capillaries, get inflamed and weep out into the interstitial space. And that inflammation turns to scar tissue between the capillaries 
and the fascia and ultimately up the fingers, up the hand, up the arm. And it goes from distal to proximal. The fingers get so stiff they can't pick up coin off of the table. And after the first day, we saw every patient for two or three hours. But after the first couple of patients on the first day, I started asking what happened just prior to the onset, before your first inflammatory response in your hand. And what is just prior? Are you thinking days, weeks, months? Usually it's in autoimmune conditions, it's four to six weeks, maybe, yeah, four to six weeks. Every single one of them, it was trauma. Yeah. It was divorce, loss of a job, death of a parent, death of a spouse. There was something that elevated the stress response and the vagus is turned off by infection, stress, and trauma. Yeah. And the Q&A that went away, that question about the MS patient who isn't allowed to... You go to answer it, it's there. Um, yeah. Sorry. Outside influences preventing. Yeah. So... There's one. You and the patient form a relationship. And that's the one where you ask the patient, so who's in charge of you and the choices that you make? Mm -hmm. My wife, my partner, it's usually an intimate relationship like that. They give me a hard time about it and it's okay. So if you look at MS as a metaphor for being powerless, Ness, powerless. I can't move. So what's the metaphor in the relationship? And I'm a psychologist and I'm a terrible therapist because I do this. I see the relationship and a good therapist over two or three months leads you until you make that connection as a patient. And I'm just bad. I see the relationship and I put it in the person's face. Right. So why does that person get to choose? They're paying the bills. Ah, then you have a problem. And the question is how you decide what you're going to do with yourself. And if MS is about being powerless as opposed to shifting who you are inside to being powerful, that's the important shift. If you can make the shift from being powerless to taking back your power, then it really doesn't matter whether you get over MS or not. This one patient has taken it to a degree that I've never seen before. I've never seen anybody so determined and so resourceful. And he's on disability, and he finds a way to fund his attendance at Dispenza's classes, to do his own work in between time, to create a support network, to do all the things that it takes to even have a glimmer of hope. So, yeah, infection, stress, and trauma. Yes, that vagus nerve. 
Debbie also had another comment. She said, I leave my client on their own for 30 minutes so I don't interfere with them and the frequency resonating. Okay. When I come back to them, I feel the mush, they feel the looseness, then we do range motion. Sometimes they feel a massive nerve pain, same movement, second time pain gone. I love FSM. Yes. Yeah. I don't leave my patients alone anymore. I want to be with them. And personally, I don't feel like I interfere with anything. I don't know, but everybody has different models. And I used to leave patients and see a bunch at the same time, but now I just want to be with them the whole time with all the machines that do all the things. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like one of those circus performers that like have the spinning plates. And so we've got all the machines going. And I'm just like machine, machine. Exactly machine tissue change. Yeah. Move tissue machine. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's so much fun. Yep. Okay. Parkinson's you think this is easier than MS? Well, it always has been getting it to be permanent. It usually takes a custom care, but the high spot was patient in Taiwan who ha- was on an incredible, incredible amount of meds. He was on dopamine agonist plus levodopa carbodopa plus he was way over medicated. And even on all the medication, his face was a mask and his feet shuffled and his arms didn't move. And that's how he came in the room. And I watched a movie on PBS called The Frozen Addict. It was in the 1990s because my mom had it. And it was three emergency room physicians who met from the New York area, who met at a cocktail party. And all three of them had patients in their late 20s who developed severe end-stage Parkinson's literally overnight. Each one of the three of them had the same story. They were at a party or someplace, and they took a synthetic heroin, I think. And in its manufacturer, when they found the drug, In its manufacture, it had gotten hung up at a chemical. It had three initials, T, H, T, something. There's a T in there someplace. The PBS special is called The Frozen Addict, and it's still out there someplace. And this intermediate, so whoever was cooking the heroin, stopped at a place that was wrong, didn't complete the manufacture of the synthetic drug and ended up with this substance, whatever this was. And the patients went from completely normal 28-year-olds to end-stage Parkinson's in 24 hours and presented to the emergency room as frozen end-stage Parkinson's. So the three ER docs met at this party and were each telling the story. And they said, wait a minute, I had one of those. I had one of those. So the whole episode was about this synthetic drug, this chemical, 
And it turns out that this chemical is present in pesticides and herbicides, I think. So as part of this documentary, they studied the Parkinson's patients in the province of Ontario. Out of, let's say, 197 of them were from farming communities, lived or worked on farms. And the other three had been raised on farms and moved to the city afterwards. So this teacher in Taiwan, I said, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a teacher. Okay, that, were you raised on a farm? No. Where's the school that you teach in? Oh, it's next to a chemical plant. Right. So if your liver can't process this organic chemical, then the chemical hits the substantia nigra and basically poisons it. So the substantia nigra is a piece of the brain that's about the size of a lentil, roughly. It's tiny. But it coordinates it movement and prevents tremor. So with this patient in Taiwan, we had a neurologist in the group, and she did the neurologic exam and saw the cogwheel and documented all the things. And then we treated him for the basics plus toxicity and then increased secretions in the basal ganglia. Now, in your laminate, there is a frequency for the substantia nigra, and I've never found it to be effective. It's the thing that works the best is the one for the basal ganglia, 988, I think. Mm -hmm. And toxicity and then increased secretions. And as you do that, you can watch. So you do it neck to feet, and you can have a second machine neck to hands, and you can you could watch his rigidity go away. And we treated him for about an hour, and then he had to use the toilet. And we said, okay, fine, get up. So he gets up, he smiles, so the mask is gone, and he steps over the cables and walks with a normal gait out to the restroom, and there you go. Now, it's not going to last because in order to rebuild the substantia nigra, you have to do dopamine precursors. He's on way too many meds. And those medications burn out the secretion portion. They reduce the symptoms, but they make the progression of the disease worse. That's another conversation. And so we all knew it wouldn't last, but to be able to do that was just extraordinary to see him smile. Yeah. Yeah. So now is it long-term it's that's going to vary from patient to patient. Where are they? How old are they? Are they able to take CoQ10 and do the things that it takes to do to rebuild 
the mitochondria and the part of the brain that's broken. That's have you ever used Solfeggio, the repair DNA with Parkinson patients? No, I haven't actually, but I haven't seen a Parkinson's patient in quite a while. So yeah. That's the thought. Yeah. Can't hurt my health. That's the Solfeggio frequency, the one to repair DNA uh, in the SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, children that it's been used on has been in, insane to watch. So a child that can't sit up, yeah. and Chris Allcroft shows the video of the first treatment where the kid is slumped over and the last treatment where he's sitting up and playing with blocks after five sessions and it was permanent. It's like, how does that happen? One of the questions that just came in, the link to the psycho-spiritual classes, I think they're probably, it's just Joe Dispenza, I think you were talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. Where's that? Q&A. Uh, oh, yep, there it is. I'm on the wrong one. Joe Dispenza has like a whole website. If you just Google his name, I think it's probably joedispenza.com. Yeah. Denise, how would one get rid of rigidity with a crushed foot? Yikes. That may be a matter of you can't put tissue back that's not there. So cartilage, get a model of a foot and look at the joints and look at where the cartilage is, where the joint capsule is, calcium scarring, but calcium scarring necrosis in the cartilage that then there's once again the question if you can't get rid of the rigidity with the crushed foot then work upstream from that what is the ultimate goal my ultimate goal what do you want to be able to do that this crushed foot is stopping you from doing right be able to run a marathon can we start smaller what would you like to do before running a marathon? They'd like to be able to walk across the room barefooted. Okay. So then work upstream, up the Achilles, up the gastroc, up the femur, into the pelvis, into the hip. Because as you watch them walk, you see what has to accommodate because the patient can't do the roll off portion. So they can't lift their heel because the foot won't pronate and supinate. Yeah. Good resources to rebuilding mitochondria to keep Parkinson's correction a whole better. Part of the challenge with the Parkinson's patient is the liver can't. I do 23. And thank you, JJ. JoeDispenza.com. The liver can't detoxify the toxins that are making their way up to the substantia nigra. So do a 23andMe and find out what detox pathways aren't working. I send mine to new to hacker. People have different favorites, but that's my favorite because that's what was the most useful to me. And then you backload those detoxification pathways. So for some patients, it's eat broccoli and take N-acetylcysteine and whatever, help the liver detoxify it. 
then CoQ10 to rebuild the mitochondria, essential fatty acids, vitamin C, lipoic acid is big help. So Maddie had a question she had emailed. So I think we should probably read that because her yes, the patient had a crushed foot and CRPS. The CRPS is 40 and 10. And then CRPS is just like it's shown in the video and just like it is in the class, 40 and 396. She said that in her initial, when she did 40 and 10 and 4396, by 50 minutes, his pain came up. The treatment started, her, his pain was a five, and then it went up to an eight over 10. Running 40 and 396? Yeah. That's oh, you know what? Jody had a CRPS patient where what she had to do was run 81 and 396. So the point, the nerve wasn't hypersensitive. It was like phantom limb pain. So it was 81 and 396. All right. Yeah, so maybe. And that's the point where I make it look easy. And I always get nervous when I don't fail. Because there's never going to be anything that works 100% on everybody. Jody Adams was the one that ended up treating a lot of CRPS. Mm -hmm. And she found a cluster of patients where they... I think it was 81 and 396. It might have been 321 and 396, but I'm pretty sure it was 81 and 396. That was the thing that made it work. Because usually I save increased secretions in the nerve for the very end. And for her, that's what brought the pain down. And then I, other than that, yeah, a lot of times if something goes up, pain goes up. And you're running a 40 if the pain goes up. We talk about infection, but with something like this, yeah, I always think about if I do this and the pain goes up, what's the opposite of this? Yeah. <laughs> In that case, it's 81, right? So yeah. if you're neutralizing versus increasing. Angela, welcome. You're an FSM newbie, just found us. Stiff knee. Oh, dear. Yikes. Oh, yes, that happens. Yeah, yeah, total knees are hard. So it depends on how long the knee has been stiff postoperatively. There could be a host of things that's causing this. And I like how she put it in quotes, stiff, because like, why is it stiff? Yeah. Six months, less Six months. Yeah. In my world, I usually think of scarring in the nerve, scarring in the connective tissue, But it can also be, if you look at what they do during the surgery, they put a tourniquet on above, and that can create scar tissue up in the femoral nerve plexus, and that can inhibit the motor activation of the quads. They're not allowed to move them because, so that's one possibility. The other one that we found one time was patients that are oops infection is there too yeah so patients that are allergic to the to the metal so as you go to straighten the knee you're pushing metal down into the bone marrow that the patient's allergic to so you run metallic toxin and the patient had an infection so the 
Other thing that has worked, so if you think what got infected, it's usually the bone or the implant. And what did they have to do because of the infection? Scarring in the bone marrow. If you look at where the pin is down into the tibia, and then usually are up into the femur. Where's the pin, above or below? And then there's a cap on the tibial head. Yes. And then the replacement is up into the femur. Scarring in the bone marrow. Infection. Infection in the bone marrow, infection in the bone. Yeah. Infection leads to inflammation, leads to scarring. Yeah. And then... The basics, for sure, like trauma, treating the vagus, and then 4089, once they're going to be petrified to move with all of these things going on. So it's complex, but I agree 100% with what you said. The only thing I would have added was the 4089 in there for good measure. And also, I mean, ultimately, that whole, what do you call it, reconnecting or something where you quiet down the cerebellum, and then 40 and 89, quiet down the midbrain that's afraid to move it. Wipe and load, that's it. And then turn on the cerebellum, but then turn on the sensory and motor cortex. Absolutely. And yeah. And then the other thing that is true about knee replacements that's difficult is knees are complex because of the curves. So hips are pretty straightforward. You've got the angle of the femoral neck. You've got the size of the ball, the size of the socket. There's really only one, two, these, the ball and the socket go together. The angle of the femoral neck to the angle at the femur, they've got a limited number, but they're able to match those. So they take x-rays of the patient laying down and they measure those angles, and then they pick the hardware that the patient needs. Knees, if you look at a knee, it's a nightmare. There's the angle of the curve off the femur. Condyles, yeah. Ephemeral condyles, and that's in three dimensions. There's the forward curve, there's the lateral curve, there's the space between the curves, there's how wide is the plateau, how big is the... It's an architectural... (laughs) Disaster. Challenge. (laughs) Challenge, that's right. That was my alarm going off saying that... It's not. Four o'clock, yes. Okay. All right, then. We got through most of Good luck. Yeah, Yes. We got through most of my list. I think it's fascinating that we talked about these two conditions, but they've been on my list forever. And then something just pushed it forward today. And that's great that you had such a phenomenal MS story to talk about. Oh, and he sent me the videos today. That was so cool. So cool. Angela, you have lots of neat things to try now, but yeah, it's just thinking your way through the steps and looking outside the box with everything. My quotes don't really match today. So I want to go back to yours about movement and the soul. Will you bring us home with that quote again, please? Yeah. The soul moves first. Oh, I love this. 
The soul moves first. Amen. It does. Isn't that cool? Yes. I want to say something to Angela, though. Yes. What you're starting with, especially if you're an FSM newbie, please understand that this is one of the most difficult things I've ever treated. Yes. It's it, knee replacements are difficult. They are not easy. Pick a neck, pick a shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, that's right. To your point, she's new at this. Ovarian cysts. Ask the universe to send you something easy because <laughs> what a, what a nice this, torn hamstring. Yeah, exactly. It's like this this knee is not going to be a one visitor and easy fix. Sometimes it's baptism by fire. So good luck. All right. That's it for today. It is. I'll look forward to seeing you. I'm not going to see you next week. I will be on a plane to Orlando to IFM. Beautiful. I have a week to get a guest. And I think the week after that, I will be on an airplane to Canada. So cool. I will be here. on. Oh, no. Just yeah, that's right. The seventh. I'm not figure it out. We always do. We always do. Thanks so much. Aloha, Derek. Aloha, everybody. Bye. See you soon. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.